Amen. You can turn over to Titus chapter 7. Um, we're starting a new kind of little mini-series on Christmas, um, and we'll be spending some time uh, dealing with some subjects, talking about Christmas for the next several weeks. So we're taking a break from Matthew, and uh, I don't know about you, but this time of year just kind of warms my heart, and uh, not that it's we shouldn't have our hearts warmed at other times of the year, but I was... Uh, just last night driving down El Camino, um, my wife wasn't feeling good, and she said, what do you want to eat? I said, well, you know, what I want may not be what you want, so, but anyway, so I won, and I went to get my cheesesteak down at Jersey Joe's in San Carlos or Belmont or wherever it's at, and uh, uh, I was on my way down there, and I was driving by the Christmas tree lots, you know, and I had my windows down because it was kind of nice, and, uh, you know, you just smell that pine, and it just brings back all these memories. All of a sudden, just the scent of pine does that to me. Or we uh, had uh, some Chinese soup the other day over here at uh, Woodside Plaza, and as we were leaving, I grabbed one of their mints, and it was a mint, you know, one of those uh, red and white mints, kind of a candy cane kind of thing, and I put it in my mouth, and just all these memories flooded back into my mind. And they all had to deal with Christmas as a younger person and growing up, and just, you know, it was just a a blessed time. And um, I want to spend the next few weeks dealing with a series called Christmas Presents. And we're not talking about presents necessarily under the tree. We're talking about the presence of Christ in our hearts, in our lives. And so uh, this morning we want to look at the, 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 top, the uh, title of the subject is When Grace Appeared. When Grace Appeared. And uh, that's in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 4. And I just want to read this for us. Uh, through verse 7. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified... By His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That statement, the idea that we've been justified, the idea it talks about um, his, his, him, him appearing to us, He saved us. All that, that whole section there is just loaded. I mean, you could spend months teaching through that section. We're not going to do that. So just relax, but we are going to take some highlights out of the text today and look at them um, because there's just so much there. Um, it, it, it sweeps from eternity, past, all the way through to eternity, future. It's timeless, and there's a lot of depth there in that passage. But there's one phrase that kind of stands out if you look at that passage. There's one phrase that your eyes should just zero in on. And it's right there in verse 5. The middle of verse 5. Three English words. He saved us. He saved us. That's the heart of this passage. And you know what? It's also really the core. You might call it the core of the Christian faith. That's what our Christian faith is about. The idea that He saved us. It's all about salvation. It's all about God saving sinners. That word saved has really become a distinctly Christian, you might call it, word. Sozo in the Greek, and it's translated saved. And it could mean a temporary deliverance. It could mean that. It was a word used to describe the rescuing of someone from danger, uh, preserving someone safe from harm, uh, delivering someone out of potential, even life-threatening situations into safety. And it could be used in in a lot of different ways in a temporal way. In other words, wow... I was saved from that. I was saved from this automobile accident. I was saved from this. In Matthew's Gospel, it's used a lot of times talking about the word saved in just a a temporal uh, way. 
in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 25, you remember where the disciples were on the storm of Galilee, and uh, they cried out to the Lord, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. They weren't talking about their, their spiritual salvation, okay? They were talking about their physical lives. That's what they were talking about. So the verb speaks of rescuing someone from imminent, grave, serious, and even permanent danger or disaster, you might say. In a spiritual sense, however, in the New Testament, it often has the idea of being saved from sin. Being rescued from sin. From sin's power, from sin's penalty, and ultimately from sin's presence. It talks about being preserved, therefore safe and unharmed from divine wrath, from judgment, from hell, from eternal punishment. Uh, We know that word well. We love that word as Christians. We understand what it means. We talk about being saved. You ask somebody, well, when were you saved? And, you know, and they give their testimony. We talk about salvation, about the blessedness of salvation, what we read this morning out of Ephesians chapter 1. All those are blessings as a result of God saving us. We remember the words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save what? Sinners. To rescue otherwise doomed and and damned sinners. That's what he did. He came into the world to save sinners. The word in its spiritual sense, not just talking about being saved from danger or something like that, but in the spiritual sense, It not only carries a negative connotation, that is rescuing us from imminent disaster or deadly danger, it also has a positive connotation. And that it carries the essence of not only lifting us out of danger, but it also has the idea of putting us into blessing as Christians. Not only delivering us from punishment, which is the negative side, but also putting us into glory. Not only taking us out of the threat of hell, but giving us the hope of heaven. Not only dismissing us from divine wrath, but bringing us under divine blessing in our lives. That's what that word means. The idea of being saved. All that and more. The word carries the idea of being delivered, as Paul said, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light the light of God's dear Son. It's used in such a way, if you look in in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, where it says that the Lord was adding to the church, what? Daily those who should be saved. They were being rescued out of sin. They were being placed into the body of Christ, into the church, the very place of blessing. And so we've come to know that term. We've even grown familiar with that term. Maybe too familiar with that term. Sometimes when you share that with people, you know, why are you saved? Well, I don't, you know, I don't like to use that kind of word. It's kind of overused. It's overdone. I think it's kind of irrelevant now in the culture we live in today. Maybe you should use a better term than just saying, are you saved? Well, I don't know. The Bible here says that he saved us. I think we would have a hard time improving on the word of God. That's the word he uses. It's a marvelous, it's a rich term. And it doesn't need to be loaded down with so much quote-unquote Christian connotations that we lose the sense of the meaning, what it really means. It means to be rescued from imminent deadly danger. That's the idea. You can sing songs about it. We sang one this morning, Jesus Saves. There's another song. A hymn. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. We sing about His salvation. We sing about the salvation that He grants us. We talk about the salvation. 
We even pray to God and we thank Him for our salvation, or we should. It's really the core, it's the essence of everything we believe. The interesting thing about Christianity, it's, it's, it's not just another religion. It's really about a rescuing relationship. It's about somebody rescuing somebody else. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about having a relationship, a personal relationship, with the God who rescues. It's God saving men and women and children from their sin. And the inevitable, deadly, eternal consequence of that sin. So when we preach, or when we witness, or when we worship, or when we pray, or maybe we sing songs, hopefully it says something about our salvation. Because it's kind of an important thing to think about. So here in Titus, we see it basically summed up, the Christian faith summed up in those words, He saved us from sin, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, ultimately from the presence of sin. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward so much to the day when I don't have to deal with sin on an everyday basis. Are you with me on that? I mean, aren't you looking forward to the day when God just says, you know what, come home, transform, glorify body, sin, what's that? <laughs> Incredible. But that day's not here yet. At least not yet. Never know. See, the tricky thing is you never know when that day is coming. <laughs> right? We never know when we may pass from this life into the next. So we have to be ready. We have to make sure that our faith is secure in Christ. But man, I'm longing for that day. I was just out the other day doing some shopping. I was over at Michael's and getting some stuff. And I was kind of head of the line. Uh, if you shop, guys, you probably don't go into Michael's much. But you know, I used to be a manager, assistant manager of a Michael store over in Fremont, or Newark. And so I know, you know how, how the store works. So I was standing in line, and, and they have a bunch of registers, but they have one line. You understand this? I mean, there's only one line. There's a bunch of registers there. Most of them are empty. <clears throat> they had two people working the register. And so I got my stuff and got up there kind of quick, you know, and I'm waiting up there, and all of a sudden, you know, some young girl and her boyfriend, oh, there's an opening over here. And I'm standing there, and I'm thinking, okay, and I'm holding a bunch of stuff. So, you know, I didn't have a cart. So I'm going, Okay. Hopefully they'll say something to these people that, you know, the line is back there, not over here. But I was getting irritated. I was getting frustrated. I was getting impatient. And the girl actually started to ring her up. And I'm thinking, this, this is not right. This is not, I've been waiting here for Miss, Mr. it was, cashier here to get his stuff together so he could finish whatever he was doing and, and get me done. And, and, you know, I was next in line and this person just coupled this kind of butts in front. Well, she started ringing the stuff up and then the manager said, oh, you can't butt in line that way. So, so he had to actually cancel. It took her longer to cancel out the transaction and make the lady go to the end of the line than to just finish it, you know. Oh, but, you know, sin has a way of just creeping up in our hearts sometimes. And I mean, I was thinking some unpleasant thoughts toward not only the Michael store in general, you know, but just the, everything. I just left there. It's just not a good experience. That's why I don't go shopping. I don't like to go shopping. Did anybody go shopping Friday, last Friday, Black Friday, whatever they call it? Whoa, you went out shopping. I yeah, Bless your heart. You know. I was pick someone up in San Mateo for the Thanksgiving dinner and I was driving, we were driving back from, from Marjorie's house and on 101 there I looked off to Best Buy. They got tents up. This is Thanksgiving. They got tents up outside, like four tents. And I'm thinking, what's going on there, you know? I thought, man, these people camping out? Are they actually waiting for the doors? What could, are they giving away free computers? What's going on? You know, so I went home and looked through the newspaper. I'm trying to find out what are they, you know, giving away the shop or what? It's incredible. But this time of year lends itself to us just being a little on edge. Got a lot on the schedule, got a lot going on. And so it's good to know that one day, one day, beloved, we'll be freed from all that. We'll be freed from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. Well, to remind us, it's almost kind of comedy how he, he does this. He, he, he kind of sets this up here in a way because in verse 5 he says, He saved us. Lest you forget that you need saving. He just thought he would remind you a couple verses ahead. 
of time before he said that you were saved. He was just going to remind you. Look at verse 3 with me. Because sometimes we throw out, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm saved, I'm saved. You're not. Too bad. We have to be reminded as Christians sometimes from where we've come. And he does that right off the bat. Look at verse 3. He says, for we, are, we ourselves were once foolish. Do you know you once were foolish? Some of you may be saying, yeah, well, talk to my husband, he's still foolish. Or talk to my wife, she's still foolish. Whatever. But he says here, we once were foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know, that's the condition of human depravity. That's where we're at. He points it out there very clearly. Also, over in other areas of the the uh, New Testament, Paul describes this. And if you have time, not now, but after, maybe after uh, service this afternoon, go through Romans chap- chapter 1. Because he really describes man as being a victim of the lust of, of his heart to impurity. It says, he, he describes him as giving his body over to be dishonored. It says that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. That they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. I mean, that's the day and age we live in. You know, they're more concerned about some little, you know, red-tailed fox up in the hills somewhere than they are about the slaughter of innocent children every day. They worship the creation. They worship the creature rather than the creator. It goes on there in Romans 1. It says that he's given them over to degrading passions, such as women exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural, such as men burning in the desires one toward another. Men with men committing indecent acts, it says, receiving their own dues, their own persons, the due penalty of their error. He describes human depravity as a a reprobate, depraved mind, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. We see that today, don't we? Don't we see people inventing new ways to be evil? I mean, you see it all the time. I mean, what are they going to think of next? He says, depraved, fallen man is without understanding. He's untrustworthy. He's unloving and he's unmerciful. And even though he knows the ordinance of God and he knows that those who practice such things as this are worthy of death, he not only does them, but the Bible says that he gives hearty approval to the rest of them as they do them. In other words, they're kind of like cheerleaders. Yeah, yeah. More evil, more evil. I mean, you know, you read about in the paper where some poor guy is trampled to death at Walmart. I mean, can you believe? Or there's down in Palm Desert, there's, there's a shooting. The police had to come in and kill someone. Gang-related thing in a, in a, in a uh, Circuit City parking lot down there. Incredible. The day and age we live in. Galatians chapter 5 even describes it worse. It says talks about engaging in immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. Just in case he didn't mention your little pet sin, things like that, he says. First Corinthians 6. He describes fallen man as fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetousness, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Then in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that they walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience describes their hearts as being darkened, their understandings being darkened, excluded from the life of God, being ignorant, hard of heart, callous, sensual, practicing every kind of impurity with greediness. It says they're driven by the lust of their flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. That's human depravity, beloved. That's the way the Bible explains it. See, that's a description of man pre-Christ, before salvation, before He saved us. 
And there's not a person in this room that could say, oh, no, that doesn't describe me. I was perfect before I got saved. Beloved, I used to think that. Not perfect, but I thought I was a pretty good kid. Because I was always comparing myself to my crazy brothers who were doing all sorts of evil. (laughs) Continually. (laughs) So I looked at their lives, and here I am, the little altar boy and all this stuff, and I'm thinking, sin? What's that? That's sin. And God had to convict my heart. God had to show me, hey, wait a minute, you're just as bad as they are in your heart. It's interesting here because he calls them foolish in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. And notice he includes himself, for we ourselves were once also foolish. It means ignorant. It means lacking understanding. It also uses the word disobedient there. That has the idea of a rebellious lawlessness, a resistance to anything having to do with God, his truth and his commandments. It goes on and it uses the word deceived which means basically just being able to be led, led, led astray by anything. And then it actually says they were led astray from a, you know, down a perverted path, you might say. It says they were enslaved. They're bond slaves to lust. It's evil desire, pleasure, the need to feel pleasure. That's the society we live in. It says they spend their life in malice. It basically means wickedness and envy. Every kind of ill toward others is the idea. And then they're marked by this. They're marked by being hateful. (laughs) And then they're also marked by hating one another. Egocentric, isolated. They become kind of detesting of everybody that they see. Anybody that gets in their way to fulfill their lustful, passionate desire. You see that recently with this whole brouhaha about the election in Proposition 8. They don't care. They're going to do what they want to do. If that means expressing themselves and grabbing a paper cross out of an old woman's hands and tromping it under their feet and pushing her around and trying to intimidate her in a crowd, they'll do it. They don't care. Funny thing is you get some of those people outside of that and outside of that environment, and you talk to them one-on-one, and they seem like they're very loving, very caring people. Definitely lost. See, all of this basically leads us back to Romans 1.18 that says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. It leads us back to Romans 6.23 where it says, The wages of sin is what? Death. Hell. Eternal punishment. See, that's the horrifying fate we're in, and that's why He had to reach down to save us. I mean, it's obvious that we can't rescue ourselves out of this miry pit. Why would we need God if we could rescue ourselves? And so the question is, well, who will rescue such vile, vicious, evil people? Who's going to do it? Tell you what, I mean, no human has the desire to rescue people like that. No human has a plan that somehow they can be rescued. I mean, they may have plans, but you know what? They never work. No human has the power to do that. In the justice system, a lot of times they'll take certain individuals and they'll, they'll, they'll quote, you know, rehabilitate them. I'm sorry, beloved, outside of Christ, there's no rehabilitation. Just not. Doesn't work that way. Well, who's going to do it? Who's going to come and rescue these people? Who's going to save these people? That's where it comes to verse 5. It says, He saved us. Well, who is the He talking about? It says there in verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior. Who's that? Verse 6, Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, beloved, we serve a God who is a saving God. We serve a Christ who is a saving Lord. They're committed to rescuing unworthy sinners. That's what they do. That's why he called God our Savior and Christ is called Christ our Savior throughout this epistle. Because that's what they do. They save people. It's not a church that can save anybody. Well, what's the goal of this? He saves us for what reason? Look at verse 7. He points it out. That we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, instead of living in the fear of death and in the fear of hell and in the fear of eternal punishment and under the power of sin, 
God says, I want to remove you from that. I want to save you from that. I want to make you heirs of eternal life and live in heaven, in the hope of heaven. He rescues us to change our eternal destiny. That's why He does it. He fills our hearts with hope instead of dread. As Paul says in Romans 8.17, to make us heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, I want to give you an inheritance that is incorruptible, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. See, and this is the real deal when it comes to incorruptible. I think we've all bought in certain things. It's, yeah, lifetime guarantee on this puppy, you know. This baby will never wear out. And you only find it, you know, months down the road. You're looking for that 800 number they told you. You know, oh, yeah, if you have a problem, just call this number and well, we'll replace it. This number has been disconnected. <laughs> it's like, oh, wasn't as incorruptible as I thought. Well, he saved us from the consequence of sin, which is hell. He saved us from the place of eternal death, which should fill our hearts with fear. He saved us to a place of eternal life that fills our heart with hope. And namely, it's, it's called heaven. So here we are in these verses 4 through 7. And he focuses on the most important part, the most important element, you might say, of the Christian gospel. And that has to do with our salvation. The rescue of sinners from wrath and hell and the preparation of them as saints for the blessing and for heaven. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's kind of spelling out for us. And there's a lot of theology here. And we're not going to get bogged down in all the theology this morning. Not that theology is a bad thing, but we don't have time, you know, nor ability really this morning to delve into all the theology we see here. This could stand alone, this passage. A lot of commentators believe that these passages in Titus verses 4 through 7 were actually a hymn in the early church. They used to sing it as a song to God, praising Him for their salvation. And it kind of fits there because throughout this whole, you know, this passage here, he says in verse 8 at the end, he says, this is a faithful saying. In other words, you know what I'm saying. So it was familiar with them. And Paul here in Titus is teaching the church how to live. In chapter 2 and 3. In chapter 2, how to live within the church. You read Titus chapter 2, that's what he talks about. How, how, what, okay, you're called to this church, well, how are you going to live in this church? That's what he tells you in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 3, he says, okay, now you're Christians, how are you going to live in a pagan world? How are you going to do it? You're just going to walk around like this all the time? You know, get I'm a Christian. You guys stay away. You're the bad, bad, evil people outside the church. See, it's important for him to do this because he wants them to understand that living in a pagan world is hard to do. And the one thing that you have to remember, the only reason that you're different from the people in the world, the people who are unrepentant, the only reason you're different is because God saved you. That's it. That's the only thing that makes the difference. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we walk around kind of with a smug, self-righteous attitude. Well, I'm the only Christian in my office praying for those poor pagans to repent. And I got my little, you know, I love Jesus sign up there on my little booth and they know that I'm a Christian. And we look down at everybody else who's not. Almost with a condemning attitude. He wants them to understand, you know what, you can't live hostile to a pagan culture. You can't live contentious with a pagan culture. You can't live constantly fighting that culture. We talked about this several weeks ago, talking about cultural morality. You can't live in this kind of culture just demeaning the culture all the time and abusing the people that are in it and attacking them personally. As Christians, we have to realize the only reason that we're not part of that culture is because of what? He saved us. God saved us. That's it. And so it is with a sense of mercy. It's a sense of compassion that we should live in this pagan society in which we do. And we should view the tragic condition of the lost, which we were once part of. We shouldn't resent them. We shouldn't hate them. We shouldn't fight against them. We shouldn't treat them unkindly or, or with contempt. 
And I'm talking about even the most pagan people that you can think of. We shouldn't feel better than them or somehow more superior to them or maybe wiser than them. In our hearts, there should be gratefulness that God saved us. He saved us. It simply reflects the fact that salvation... Get this. He saved us. It reflects the fact that salvation is totally of God. He's emphasizing the independent, uninfluenced sovereignty with which God saves us. Totally outside of ourselves. He saved us. The point is simply that, you know what? We couldn't do anything about our condition. Not a single thing. The Bible says that we were hopeless, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Would you ever invite a dead person over for Thanksgiving dinner? No. Why? Because they probably wouldn't show up. Because they're dead. They couldn't respond to the invitation. We couldn't do anything, beloved, and He saved us. As we look at this sovereign salvation, I just want to give you the, the idea a little more about this. Because there's, there's basically seven aspects of God saving us. And they're there in your notes, or they will be once you fill in the little blank. There's seven aspects to God saving us. There's, there's kind of these seven statements that flow around the statement, He saved us in our text. And here they are. First of all, and this forms one long sentence if you look at it, it just kind of, he names them right after one another. First of all, he saved us, number one, by his kindness. Verse four. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. See, it was kindness that caused God to affect this saving plan. Because God is kind. I don't, I don't know how you view your God. But the God of the Bible is a kind God. What do we mean by that? The word literally means goodness of heart. I mean, we've said that about people. Oh, that guy's got a good heart. Oh, that girl, she's just got a good heart, sweetheart. Well, that's totally the opposite of what the Bible says about your heart. The Bible says your heart is wicked and desperately evil. That's what the Bible says. I bet bet you this morning, if you can look up here and see what's in my heart, you would yank me off this platform just as, you know, you'd say, no way, we can't have somebody like that preaching up there. He's got a wicked heart. But I could also look out at you. <laughs> say, why am I preaching to these people? It goes both ways. But God is good. He's inherently good. He's inherently kind. It means that He has a concern in His heart about people in misery. In Luke, for example, chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says this, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And listen to this, here's what he says, And you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's the very essence of the attribute of God, is kindness. He's a kind God. Even to the point that He's... Kind to ungrateful and evil men, the Bible says. See, it's within God's nature to be kind. It's within God's nature to be patient with undeserving sinners. It's within the nature of God to be un, to be to be to be loving and kind toward ungrateful sinners. He's patient, he's forbearing, he's good. The Bible even says that he lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Our area here would be in a world of hurt if God changed that. <laughs> said, I'm only going to let the rain fall on those who are just. I mean, we think we're in a drought now. I mean, this Bay Area would be drier than a bone. First Timothy 4.10 says, Delivering them from the imminent, immediate death and damnation, He saves all men. He saves them from that. Do you know that at the first time that we thought a evil deed or the first time that we had the capacity to sin in any way, God would be totally righteous, totally just in just saying, you know what, your life is gone. That one little sin. But he doesn't do that. He's kind. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You think you found God on your own? Hello? I don't think so. God led you to Himself. Because God is good. God is kind. He's patient. He's forbearing. In order that men might have time to repent. Chapter 5 of Romans, Paul says, Wherever sin abounds, what abounds more? Grace. It's a reflection of the kindness of God. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 says, Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. God is kind. God is good. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible says that He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He would have all men to be saved. That reflects His kind heart towards sinners and those who are His unworthy enemies. See, it's this very component in the eternal being of God that moved God to save us in the first place. And that's contrary to everything they knew about the gods that man created back then. Because basically they would create gods in their own image. They would create their own gods and they would worship their own gods. But more than not, they were not kind gods. They were to be feared. They were very evil gods on occasion. Our God is not. He's a kind God. He's a good God. John Calvin wrote this, God will never find in us anything which He ought to love. Chew on that one for a while. God will never find anything in us which He ought to love. But He is kind, and His kindness reaches out to unworthy sinners. He saved us by His kindness. The whole thing is initiated in this uninfluenced and sovereign kindness of God. Secondly, in Titus 3, we say that He... You see here that He saved us by His love. Verse 4 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind... He loves mankind. You hear it all the time. God loves you. God loves you. It's kind of this very broad, sweeping, far-reaching, generic term. The word love here is kind of an interesting word in the original language. Philanthropia. We get the word philanthropy from it. It means to have pity, compassion, eagerness to deliver from pain or distress because of strong affection. It's all driven by this strong affection. It doesn't have some kind of self-serving component in it. What am I going to get out of this deal? Nothing like that at all. It's not pity for the wrong reason. It's pity out of strong affection. Because God is kind. He's kind toward the ungrateful and evil men. As Jesus said, and His kindness causes Him to have this strong affection out of which He wants to act in pity and compassion. See, there's a God in glory who is perfectly holy. And here in the world is fallen man and, and it's God's nature to long to be kind to fallen man, to strive to as long as He can with fallen man so that He can have this chance to repent of His sins. And out of that kindness flows God's philanthropy, God's pity, God's compassion. He has an affection to touch a miserable life and make it pure make it better. We find the word used in Acts 28. You remember where they had come along and they were basically shipwrecked. And God in His mercy spared the, the, the crew there with Paul and they were able to swim ashore on some planks and whatnot. And it says when they got ashore on the island of Malta, verse 2 of, of Acts 28, it says the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. Here they are, they're ringing wet. They just came out of this horrible storm. The boat just totally smashed apart. All the souls, by God's grace, were up on the shore. But they had no food. They had no resources. They were probably cold. The rain's going on. The storm's still going. And these natives showed them what it says in the New American Standard. I like this. It says extraordinary kindness. They took them in. They fed them. They warmed them. They had a fire. They clothed them. The literal Greek says this, and the barbarians showed us not the ordinary love. 
That's philanthropia. Philanthropy. It's love that's not just an emotion. It reaches out with a strong affection to have pity and compassion. It's translated in the 27th chapter of Acts by the word consideration, which takes really the, it from a feeling to an action. So God is in His nature. He's good. He's kind. And all you have to do is look around our world and you see that. I mean, do you ever think how beautiful a place we live in here in the Bay Area? I mean, I hopped on my motorcycle last night just as the sun was going down, just in some sweats and a T-shirt, and had to go to the store. And I'm just driving around. I'm thinking, man, this is such a beautiful place to live. And the sun just kind of disappeared behind the hills. It's beautiful. It's because God is glorious. God is kind. He's good. Lamentations 3.22 says that His loving kindness is a, a daily gift from God. His mercies are new every morning. His loving kindness extends day to day. Great is thy faithfulness. But you really want to read about the kindness of God. You can do this on your own time. You can turn to Luke, not now, but Luke 15 and read about the prodigal son. And you read about how God's love is pictured in the father reaching out to a wayward son. That's the kind of heart that God wants us to have. In verse chapter 2 of, of uh, verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, when the grace of God appeared, that's a reference to the incarnation. That's a reference to the birth of Christ. It isn't that it's never appeared before. God's kindness and God's love could be seen in a myriad of ways. But the full, visible, personal manifestation of the grace of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, came in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He was compassion. He was pity. He was love. He was kindness. He was goodness in human form. He was the eternal God made visible. And all of the Father's divine attributes that caused Him to love sinners were made visible in the life of Christ. If you ever wonder whether God loves sinners, all you have to do is look at the life of Jesus Christ. And you see Him weeping over them. You see Him constantly reaching out to them. When He appeared, kindness and love were incarnate. And it says He saved us because we couldn't rescue ourselves. It was the kindness of God and the love of God that appeared in Christ that started that rescue operation. I'll just say this. I mean, that appearance historically happened. We all know it. That's why we celebrate Christmas. But you know what? It doesn't mean anything to you other than maybe some fond memories unless it, it takes root in your heart. Unless you personally cry out to God, God, save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what he's referring to in verse 4 is that incarnation that the kindness of God, the love of God appeared being made visible in Christ. But that appearance is lost to those who never put their faith in him personally. So salvation is by kindness, it's by love. Thirdly, he saved us by mercy. Not only by his kindness, by his love, but now we move on to mercy. His kindness caused him to feel strong affection. And his strong affection caused this compassion and pity which caused him to be merciful to us. And so you look at verse 5 in our text. It says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to what? His mercy. I mean, mercy is an incredible word. It's different from grace. And I gave you a little outline there and there's some differences there that you can look at. Grace relates to guilt, but mercy relates to misery. Grace relates to the state of the sinner before God the judge. Mercy relates to the condition of the sinner in his sin. Grace is a, you might call it a judicial concept that forgives the crime. But mercy is a compassionate concept that helps the criminal recover. See, mercy looks at misery, but grace looks at the guilt. And here he's talking about mercy. And he says that it was God's mercy. He saved us. Not of what, because of what we've done in righteousness. Very clear there. 
Salvation is not by works of righteousness. Let's just be real clear. Beloved, you make no contribution to your salvation whatsoever. None. Zip. Zero. You have no capacity to make any contribution. I just crack up sometimes when I hear people, you know, oh, let me share, you know, could you share your testimony? Oh, yeah, you know. Well, then I found God. No, you didn't. The truth be told, you weren't even looking for God. There's none that seeks God. Matter of fact, you didn't even know you were lost. Let's just be honest. Did you walk around before your salvation? I know I didn't going, gee, I'm just so lost. I never didn't have a clue. I was busy doing all my religious stuff. Thinking that somehow that was going to earn favor with God. In no way can you earn your salvation. In no way do you deserve your salvation. In no way do you contribute to it. Your rescue and your transformation and your deliverance from sin and death and hell comes from God and God alone. That's it. That's the only source. You remember Paul, before he was converted, he spent most of his life, he spent a lot of it trying to kill Christians because he was religious and Jewish and figured, hey, these people are threatening my way of life. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Because Paul here just kind of gives us information about where he was before he came to Christ. He was trying to purchase his salvation. He was trying to earn it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Look at this. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And then in verse 4, here's his list. He says, basically here in verse 4, I also may have confidence in the flesh. If anybody should have confidence in the flesh, it should be me. That's what he's saying. If anyone else thinks that he has confidence in the flesh, I more so. And here's his list. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What's he saying here? He's saying, you know what? I was a traditional Orthodox Jew. And I chose to become a Pharisee because I wanted to take it to the nth degree. I wanted to go as far as I could with this thing. And then he says, all those things. All those things. The human base of righteousness in my life, I counted. One time they were gained to me, but now I count it loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. I count it as manure. I count it as rubbish, as garbage, trash, filth. doesn't mean anything to him anymore. The best of the deeds that I have done were nothing but trash. Do you ever think about that? I mean, that's one of the verses that spoke to my heart when I first became a Christian. Because I gave a list of things that, you know, hey, oh, I do this, I do that, I don't do that. I, you know, and, and the pastor just kept on saying, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He just kept on saying that. All, 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 that means you, Steve. And I had to come to terms and say, you know what, all this stuff? I mean, I've gone to Mass every day of my life almost and, you know, done, done this and, and it's all for naught? Yeah. Doesn't mean anything to God. I mean, when they had to pull me out of school because of an altar boy and had to go down here and, and maybe be part of a funeral or a Mass for somebody, that doesn't, that, you know, I want to be with my friends. I didn't want to go to church, but I did it. Doesn't mean anything. Wow. He says, I threw it all aside for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, whom I received a righteousness, look at this, not my own on the basis of works, but the righteousness of God. See, that's mercy. We deserve wrath, beloved, but we receive what? Salvation. Why? Because God is kind. God has compassion. He has this pitiful love, which is expressed in mercy toward us as miserable sinners. Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. 
but I was shown mercy. That's how it happens. God was merciful to undeserved, unearned. It, it's, it's not something that can be influenced. It's spontaneous mercy that expresses God's amazing kindness and God's amazing love towards sinners. Even though He's perfectly holy, <laughs> sovereign mercy then led God to kindly and lovingly grant forgiveness and eternal glory to pitiful transgressors like you and I. And that's what it means when he says he saved us by his kindness, by his love, by his mercy. Fourthly, by his regeneration. Verse 5 says he saved us not on a basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. The word regeneration means to be born again. It means to receive new life. Only God can give us that. I mean, sure, scientists are out there trying to create life and all this stuff, you know. But only God can create life. They may be able to alter it a little bit, but only God can create life. You've all heard the story of the guy, the scientist, who's going to challenge God and he's going to create life. And, you know, he has this one-on-one with God. And, yeah, okay, well, go, go, to, go to work. All right, I'll go do it. You know, so he reaches down to pick up a pail of dirt. God taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, bud, you go get your own dirt. You know, you, you can't start from nothing. Regeneration, being born again. That's what Nicodemus talked about in John 3. You must be born from above, he said to Nicodemus, born again. Only God can do that. Here's a sinner dead in trespass and sin, the Bible says, totally hopeless. He can't pick himself up. He can't rescue himself. God comes from outside and regenerates him, gives him new life. In that process, cleanses the old life so that regeneration, the regeneration is called washing, that old life which was filthy, and vile and the dead corpse. It's washed and it's regenerated and it's, it's brand new. Paul talks about being crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. He says, nevertheless, I live. That's the resurrection life. Romans 6, he says, we were buried with Christ in his death, but we rise to walk in newness of life. In John 3 and 1 John 2, 3, 4, and 5, they all talk about regeneration. They talk about new life. They talk about being born again, being cleansed, being washed. See, it's not living your life and then adding God to the mix. That's not what Christianity is. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is coming to God for broke, saying, you know what? I don't have anything. I don't have nothing here, God, but I need you. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't even know why you would do that, God. But your Bible says, your word says that you will. It's that brokenness of the heart that God will hear. First Peter one twenty three says that we are born again through the living and abiding Word of God. It's the Word of God that gives us life through the Spirit. Sometimes people ask, you know, hey, I have this unsaved friend or relative, and, you know, I want to share, share the Gospel with them. How, how do I do it? You know, I always come back to the same thing. Share the Word of God. If you don't do anything else, share the Word of God somehow with them. Because that's the only thing that has any power. So he saved us by his kindness, his love, his mercy, his regeneration. Five, quickly, by his spirit. By his spirit. The end of verse five it says that our salvation, he saved us by the renewing of, by the spirit. Salvation demonstrated his kindness, his love, his mercy. It also demonstrated the power to give us life, to wash us and regenerate. And it also demonstrated the Holy Spirit and his power of renewal. That's kind of the next logical step here in the process The effect of regeneration is new life. And when that new life emerges out of new birth, which is affected by the Word of God and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who renews us. And it's a radical renewal. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Paul says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God? That you're not your own, that you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. We are whole new creations, walking in newness of life. Some people say, well, I don't know if I'm saved. 
Well, you know what? Have you seen new birth in your life? Or is it same as usual? Same old stuff. Because we can be moral. We can live a moral life. We can do okay in that area. That doesn't mean you're saved. That just means you may be a good person, a moral person. At least as moral as you, you're trying to be. Your heart's still desperately wicked. Ephesians 3.20 says that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think according to his power that's work in, worked at work in us, his Holy Spirit. I mean, that just amazes me that God put his Holy Spirit within us as a deposit. It secures you in Christ. So if you're in Christ and you're really saved, think about the fact that God put a security deposit down on you. And it would go against his very nature to, to negate that deposit. He wouldn't give up on that deposit. He's going to save you. There's no turning back. That's where we get the idea of the perseverance of the saints. It's, it's God persevering in us that allows us to persevere in our faith. It's not us on our own persevering. We don't have that kind of power. Who do we think we are? Number six, he saved us by his son. All this says, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He saved us by mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration. He saved us by the renewing of the Spirit. And he also saved us through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. I mean, if we didn't have this one, let's just go home, right? I mean, if we didn't have Jesus Christ, we don't have nothing. Take all the lights down, you know, forget all the shopping, nothing. Even in the secular world, nothing. I mean, every time you sign a check, you're validating the birth of Christ when you date it. Do you ever think of that? It's amazing. You wouldn't go anywhere without this. Jesus came to pay the price for sin and conquer death. And it was God's predetermined plan to have Christ crucified. That was part of His eternal covenant with Christ. Remember, the Father made a covenant to give the Son a redeemed humanity as an expression of the Father's love. And He said to the Son, You know what? I want to give you a redeemed humanity so that forever and ever and ever in glory they will never cease to praise and worship you. But you have to do one thing for me. You have to go and you have to die. You have to pay the price for their sins because they can't do it. And lastly, we're saved by His grace. Verse 7. That being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Remember, grace deals with our guilt. Grace says you are pardoned. You are forgiven because of the sacrifice of Christ. Grace takes the righteousness of God and imputes it, puts it upon you, puts it in your account, declaring you righteous and just in God's eyes because Christ has made a satisfactory atonement, sacrifice for your sins. He paid the price and therefore our sins are removed. Justice is fully satisfied. We're justified by His grace. Grace is basically giving us what we don't deserve. And when God says He saved us, we don't deserve that. And the minute we begin to think we do, we better check our heart. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to have our sin removed. We don't deserve to be imputed with the righteousness of God. We don't even deserve to be just before God. We don't deserve to come into His presence. We don't deserve heaven. But grace gives us all that and more because God is satisfied with Christ. Father, we thank You this morning, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You for our salvation in Christ. We thank You for the appearing of Your Son, Jesus Christ, God's grace. But Lord, we're reminded that we live in a pagan society. We live in a world that's... We look at it and we say, well, it's going to hell in a handbasket. And it's so easy for us to become malicious. It's so easy for us to become unkind and ungracious and hard and critical. It's so easy for us to fight back, to demand our rights... May we be reminded to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be eager to do every good deed for them, to malign no one, to be uncontentious. May we be reminded to be gentle, showing consideration for all men. May we remember the fact that if it weren't for Your grace, for the fact that You reached down and saved us, that we would be just like them. May the fact that we're grateful for our salvation lead us to the recognition that it's your salvation and yours alone. 
that we may look on the world the way you do, with kindness and compassion and mercy. And may we be faithful to please, to plead with you to save those who have yet to be saved as you saved us. And for all that you save and bring to glory, we give you praise. And most personally, we thank you for the mystery that you saved us. We don't understand it, but that's what you did. And we, in our lives, we pray that we would live devoted lives that are dedicated to you, serving you, serving the church, serving this world for the cause of Christ. We thank you for your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.